Church, are you ready? Because today we are going to celebrate. We are celebrating today, church. So I want you to know in a, uh, kind of in advance where we're headed, what we're doing today. Uh, so I want you to kind of feel free to be like, hey, we're going to celebrate today. Uh, so we can relax and have a good time in our word today. Let me start by just saying thank you. I want to start by saying thank you to our Westmead body of believers. Man, I am so thankful for you. I am so thankful to you. I am so thankful to God for who you are. And I'm not meaning to draw offense to you, but after we get done with this little bitty narrative right here, we're not, we're not going to thank you anymore. <laughs> uh, no offense, but this morning, all glory goes to our Heavenly Father. This morning, everything that we celebrate is because of who God is. So this morning, I'm just going to go ahead and start by saying thank you for being you and allowing me to be a part of you. It is such a privilege to call Westmead my church family, uh, that we get to worship and celebrate Jesus together. Uh, so thank you for that. Now I'm done thanking you. So the awkwardness is now all behind us, right? Okay, good. Just making sure. I didn't know if you were sitting there saying, no, say it one more time. Thank me one more time. I didn't know where we were at on that. So uh, this morning as we celebrate, we're going to remember why we celebrate. We're going to celebrate the only one that because of his hand and because of him in action, because that's who he is, that's the God he is, he is a God of action, that we will celebrate and give God glory and praise for who he is and what he's doing. And in order for us to do that, I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7. And this morning, there's a lot, man, there's a lot I would love for us to get into today, so I'm going to move kind of quickly. All right? Wonderful. I'm not even waiting for you to respond anymore. We're just going to keep moving because we got to go. But in 1 Samuel 7, there's a lot that's happening. And this morning, as we look at 1 Samuel 7, we, we, we need to appreciate the depth, the gravity of everything that's taking place in this text. So in order to do so, I need all of you to read 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 6 real quick. And when all of you are done, we're going to move forward in chapter 7, okay? I'll be back here waiting quietly. When you're done, just stand up. Why are y'all looking at me? You should be reading. For the sake of time, do you mind if I just fill in some gaps for you? All right, so here we go. We're fixing to walk through the first six chapters of 1 Samuel real quick in order for you to understand what's going on and the major players that are involved. So if you go back and you were to start in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, you will be introduced to a lady named Hannah. Hannah was awesome. She was married to Elkanah, uh, but Hannah could not bear children. Uh, so once a year when she and her family would go to the temple, she would just pray to God to give her a son. She was really desperate for a son. And when she was praying for God to give her a son, she said, God, if you just give me his son, I would give him to you. I would hope we as parents make the same prayers over our children. That God, thank you for our children, or God, one day let me be a parent of a child, and may I be a parent who's faithful to give my child back to you for whatever it is you call them to. That was Hannah's prayer. 
And when she was praying for this, the priest named Eli came to her and they had a conversation and she shared with him what she was praying about and he was very encouraging. And matter of fact, not long after that, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And she named her son Samuel, thus the first Samuel. Just connecting some dots there for you. So, sure enough, as Samuel was old enough, she went back to the temple and met with Eli again and said, Eli, you remember me? Um, so God answered that prayer, and now that my son's old enough, I'm here and I'm bringing him to you. And literally left her son, Samuel, there under the tutelage of Eli in order for him to be raised to be a priest. But here's, here's a little sidebar that's going on. See, Eli, while he is the priest, Eli has two sons that are kind of wicked, They're very sinful. And while they are priests, because their father is a priest and he raised them in that, they didn't pursue the priesthood with integrity and a way to honor the Lord. And what's worse about this is not only were they wicked in their actions and lifestyles and choices, but Eli, their father, who was the priest, knew they were wicked. And because of his knowledge of his sons being wicked and not doing anything about it, And because his sons were wicked, God had already stepped in and told Eli, hey, I'm just going to be honest with you, Eli, your your blood ends with you, bro. We're not going to continue this priesthood from your family line because of your son's wickedness and disobedience and because of your clear knowledge of it and not doing anything about it. So if we could have a little mini sermon real quick. Hey, parents, that's how serious God takes your ability to parent your children. Parents, if you know your children are living in a way that doesn't honor God, God's word says you're going to be held accountable for that. Do you know why? Because you're their parents. So if you're more obsessed with being your child's friend and not their parent, you better biblically wake up and recognize who God has called you to be by giving you that child. Open your eyes because it's a big deal to God for parents to raise their children in godliness, and when the parents are aware that their children are straying from that, that they intervene. Why? Because your child is worth it. Because God's glory that's made evident in your child's lifestyle is worth it. Because it's a reflection of how God will glorify his name through you. That's not, that was free. That wasn't even in my notes. All right, But we're going to keep going. So the Lord had spoken against the house of Eli. And by the way, the Lord in this context, God Almighty was called Yahweh in this text that we're looking at. He had already spoken against the house of Eli and said, I'm going to raise up a new priest, a good priest, who's actually going to come and and live out all of these things. In chapter 4, that's in verse chapters 1 through 3. In chapter 4, we see the Israelites go to war with the Philistines. Oh, the Philistines, those good old, wonderful Old Testament guys, the bad guys. They go to war with the Philistines, and here's what happened in chapter 4. The Israelites got it handed to them by the Philistines. Decimated, total loss. And the Israelites started freaking out. They're like, oh man, we just got destroyed by the Philistines. What happens when they come back? We're going to lose again. And they were running from the Philistines, and they were doing their thing. But somebody in the Israelite army said, oh, I got an idea. If we're going to go to war with the Philistines, we need a weapon. I got a really good weapon we're going to use. Somebody said a tank. He said, no. What is that? Never mind. (laughs) We're going to go get the Ark of the Covenant. And we're going to put the Ark of the Covenant in front of our army. And everybody said, oh, yay. So they go get the Ark of the Covenant. 
and they bring it into the Israelite camp. And the word tells us that when they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the Israelite camp, that the Israelites got so fired up, they got so excited, they started shouting and singing and celebrating. Unfortunately, a lot of their shouting and stuff wasn't to glorify God. It was just they were so fired up because we got the ultimate weapon. We got the Ark of the Covenant. Man, have you known what got, this is going to go out in front of us? We're going to destroy the Philistines. The word tells us that they got so excited and raised such a ruckus that the ground shook. Now, the Philistine encampment wasn't too far away. And the Philistines felt the ground shake. They heard this noise and they said, what is going on over there? And they started talking and they saw a little bit of a panic started creating amongst the Philistines. And like, man, this is, something's going on in the Israelite camp. And then somebody in the Philistine camp said this. They said, I bet I know what happens. I bet a God, and in scripture it's a little g because they didn't know Yahweh. They said, I bet a God has come and joined their numbers it says the Philistines were greatly afraid. And they started shouting out, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the leaders of the Philistines said, I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to fight like men. You can be afraid all you want, but we're going to go down there and we're going to fight. And you're going to fight like men because that's who you are because you're Philistines. And they said, yeah, we're Philistines. We're afraid, but we're going to fight like men. So they all go down into the Israelite encampment. You know what happens? What? The Philistines decimated the Israelites. Didn't see that one coming, did you? Word tells us that 30,000 Israelite soldiers were slaughtered on that day. So for all you people whose theology is built on Indiana Jones, when Marcus Brody says, for the army that marches the Ark of the Covenant before it is... Dramatic pause, invincible. It's kind of wrong. The Israelites were slaughtered by the Philistines. And among the numbers dead were the two wicked sons of Eli. For they had been with the Ark of the Covenant. And not only did they kill 30,000 of Israelites' army, as well as Eli's two priestly sons, the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant back with them. Well, word travels quickly, and a a runner comes into the Israelite kind of headquarters where Eli is sitting. Because of Eli being the priest, and because the Israelites did not have a king, this was before King Saul and King David and all this stuff, they didn't have a king. Uh, So Eli was kind of serving as the figurehead, as the leader of the people, which was poor leadership because he was in direct disobedience to God's word, and he knew it. But at the same time, and this is the Bible talking, this is not me speculating, it says that Eli was old, blind, and fat, and was sitting in his seat in this certain city when the runner came in, and he asked the runner, he said, hey boy, what happened in the battle today? And he said, you're not going to like it. And he said, go ahead and tell me. And he says, the Israelites were slaughtered. We lost about 30,000 soldiers. Both of your sons have been killed and they took the ark of the covenant and the word tells us that when eli heard that the ark of the covenant had been taken that the chair he was sitting in he caused such a panic or whatever that he fell out of his chair broke his neck and died thus god's declaration that the root the house of eli will end with his sons 
Now Israelites are completely in chaos. They've just been routed by the Philistines. Their Ark of the Covenant has been taken. And their priest lies dead in the street. Kind of a panic moment, wouldn't you think? But see, the Philistines, they didn't have much luck either. Yeah, they walked in and routed the Israelites. But what is it I told you that they took? This is like from a teacher's perspective to see if you've been paying attention, okay? So what did the Philistines take with them? Okay, very good. Just making sure. Ark of the Covenant. They take the Ark of the Covenant back to their city in kind of a celebration. Let me tell you a little bit of background about the Philistines. See, the Philistines loved war. The Philistines had many little g-gods. Their main god was called Dagon. They had temples built to Dagon. But see, the Philistines had this philosophical idea that when they went to war with another group of people, they saw it as their little g-gods going to war with whoever they were going to war with, their gods. And whoever had the strongest god was going to win the battle. Well, the Philistines just destroyed the Israelites, almost. And they brought back with them the Ark of the Covenant. And what they would do is when they would destroy another army, they would bring what they thought would symbolize their deities back to their cities and put it in their temples. Because while they believed that these were defeated gods, they felt like even defeated gods should still be revered and worshipped. So they would bring all these little g-gods into their temples and they would still pay homage to them and they would still worship them and they would still respect them so as not to offend them. They saw the Ark of the Covenant as a symbol of the Israelites, what they thought, little g-god. So they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of Dagon and set it on the platform right next to their little statue of Dagon. Like literally, they had a little gold statue of Dagon sitting in a throne, okay, in their temple. And they had the Ark of the Covenant sitting on the tier right next to it, kind of below it. The next morning, they come into the temple of Dagon, and little Dagon was out of his throne and lying face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. They thought, we didn't know there was an earthquake, we didn't know what was going on, and surely nobody came in here and was messing with things. So they put little Dagon back on his throne so they could worship a false god. The next morning they came back, and not only was little Dagon not in his little throne, but little Dagon was lying on the floor face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant with his head broke off and his arms broken off. Church, even inanimate objects will bow before the king of kings. God was showing that he didn't need the Israelites to declare his glory. He was capable of declaring his glory on his own. And the Philistines were like, wow, something's going on with this Ark of the Covenant thing. And not only that, but things started happening in the city where the Ark of the Covenant was. The Philistines started breaking out in tumors. Tumors. And not only that, but apparently there was a plague of rats that broke out. Well, the Philistines had enough of that. So they said, hey, you know what? We're, you are, you are, your city over there, your Philistine city over there is so nice. We know what would make it look really good. This Ark of the Covenant, you guys should put this in your city. And they did. Well, the tumors and rats didn't go away. The only thing that happened is the new city that held the Ark of the Covenant, guess what? Tumors and rats start breaking up. Seven months 
Seven months, the Ark of the Covenant toured around all these Philistine cities. And in every city, there was an outbreak of tumors and a plague of rats. And then finally, the Philistine leaders said, hey, you know what? We're seeing a reoccurring problem here. We're noticing a pattern. Uh, and it's, cent- it's centered around this Ark of the Covenant type thing. Probably what we should do is give it back. So they voted, I guess, and uh, they said, we're going to send it back to the Israelites. And somebody said, oh, no, 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 we, we can't just send it back. We need to send a guilt offering with it, not just to give it back to them, but these tumors and rats need to go away. So let's send a guilt offering apologizing to their gods. So literally, they took the Ark of the Covenant and put it on a, a wagon. And then they, <laughs> serious, they cast, they started making gold statues to send with them and the gold statues were of tumors and rats so here's the ark of the covenant comes rolling down the path pulled by two cattle with all these little gold tumors and gold rats with it now it rolls up into the israelites one of their outlying towns and the people were like i think that's the ark of the covenant on a wagon top in the hill over there so they got really excited The Ark of the Covenant's back. And what are these gold things? It's shaped weird. Anyway, the Ark of the Covenant's back. So they got really excited about it. But, unfortunately for the Israelites, they still just really didn't have an idea of who God was. And even though they were excited, and even though they worshipped God because the Ark of the Covenant was back, the Word tells us that God was displeased. And about 70 of the Israelites lost their lives that day. Because they wanted to look inside the Ark of the Covenant. This displeased God. They didn't even understand a reverence for the Ark of the Covenant. And 70 Israelites lost their lives that day. And after that happens, we don't really see a radical difference between the Philistines and the Israelites. Because after that happens, I had to write the name of this place down to get it right. They sent word to Kiriath-Jerim. And told him, hey guys, the ark is back. Yay! Send somebody to bring it to you because it's killed 70 of us. And if you go back and if you read chapters 1 through 6, you will see that the Israelites, in reality, weren't that different from the Philistines. Matter of fact, the Israelites at this time, maybe they did worship God, Yahweh, the real, true, and living God. Maybe they didn't. But if they, even if they did worship God, they had other little g-gods that they worshipped. They had these things called Asherah poles that they had set up to honor all these other gods. They worshipped all these other gods. The Israelites really didn't look that much different than the Philistines. And that kind of gets us to where we need to be as we begin chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. Some of y'all are thinking, see, I don't have to go read it now. I know everything. No, you really should go and read it. But let's look at this in 1 Samuel chapter 7. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to guard the ark of the Lord. Beginning in verse 2. The ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. And here's where we start today, church. Then all of the people of Israel turned back. To the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you 
out of the hand of the Philistines. Let's stop right there for just a moment so we can fully understand what we just read. You can leave that slide up. So we see the Ark of the Covenant. We see it back that the, something happened in the hearts of the people. It says they turned back to the Lord. And then we see that character that we talked about that we find in chapter 1 who was just born, Samuel. Samuel stepping up to the plate. See, remember God had told the house of Eli, I'm going to bring a new priest. I'm going to bring a good priest who's going to lead my people. And we see him here. This is where we see Samuel stepping up into leadership. So the people started turning their hearts back to, to the Lord. And Samuel stepped out and declared to them something very, very potent that I don't want us to miss. He said, if you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves and commit yourselves. I want to pause right there. I want to spend some time breaking down what that means. Because if you look at it and if you understand what he's saying here, you're seeing an Old Testament version of grace. A lot of times we just associate grace with the New Testament, but it's all throughout the Old Testament too. And this is, this is a declaration of grace. He's not saying, hey guys, y'all already abandoned God. It's too late for you. Let's just go wander in the wilderness another 40 years and get a new generation to come up. No, he turns to them because their desire is to turn back to the Lord. And he says, if you want to turn back to the Lord, you need to rid yourselves and you need to commit yourselves. Let's talk about that rid yourselves for just a moment, church. Because when it comes to grace, sometimes we as the church, we get it wrong. Because a lot of times when we, when we get caught up in chasing after the things of this world, we get caught up in a, a series of poor choices that don't respect and honor and glorify God in our lives. And we recognize when the Holy Spirit leads us to conviction and we lead back to the place where we'll be like, you know what, man, I've just really gotten out of bounds. I've just really wandered off from who God is and his desire for us. A lot of times we can be like, hey, God, what's up, man? I'm back. I made some mistakes. I need you to forgive me. Hey, let's keep going. What is it you wanted me to do again? Because I'm ready to follow you now. Here's me, hear me when I say this. Don't, don't mince my words, please. Because of the grace of God, he always welcomes us back. But church, I need you to hear something that is a biblical truth today. Grace does not ignore your sin. Grace, true grace, confronts your sin. When we talk about, man, God is so full of grace, he is. And God welcomes us back every time, but he confronts, our grace confronts our sin. And it's demonstrated here when Samuel looks to the people and said, rid yourselves. It would have been one thing for the people to be like, hey, God, hey, we're back. We want to turn our hearts back to you. Let's keep going. That's not going to happen when you got these asterisk poles set up in the front yard and all your little G gods decorating your living room. And Samuel, the good priest, said, if you're serious about this, if you really want to turn your hearts back to the Lord, rid yourselves of the things that you began to devote yourself to that weren't the Lord. You need to go and evaluate your little world, Israelites, and whatever it is that you started putting your trust in, that you started putting your hope in, these things that you turned away from God to pursue, you've got to get rid of them. 
If you're serious about bringing your hearts back to the Lord, you have to rid yourselves of the things that your heart belonged to before this. Guys, this is a serious thing. In a world where Christianity is getting watered down by the day, and we forget that there is a cause and effect, there are consequences that come with sin, we have to recognize what God's Word says when it talks about our disobedience to the Lord. And when we are called to repentance, when we're called back into a healthy fellowship with God, then we must rid ourselves with the things that our hearts pursued. Now, I really genuinely believe, I believe that there is nobody in this room that when you go home today, you're going to walk into your living room or your bedroom or whatever room in your house, and there in the corner is going to be a little two-foot statue of some little G God that you've created your own name for it, that's in some spiritual worship book that you read. I don't think anybody in this room is going to go home and bow down to a statue in their house. If there is, and if you do that, please know that is called idol worship. It is a sin, and in order for you to grow in your relationship with God, something needs to be done about that. Just making sure we got all our bases covered. But I personally don't think we have people that are like that. But I personally also believe that because we're people and because we're human and because we have a born with a sinful nature, that there are things in our life, maybe they're not statues sitting in the corner, but there are things in our life that we've devoted ourselves to that aren't the Lord. I firmly believe that in this room we have people that are chasing after things that are not God because they believe those things are going to fulfill them. I believe that they're looking to these things for security. They're looking to these things for hope. They're looking to these things for fulfillment. No, I don't think they're little statues in the corners of our bedrooms, but I believe that as sinful people, we naturally gravitate to worshiping things that we think are going to fulfill us other than the Lord. I think they're out there. And I think when we recognize this call to grace, when we recognize this call to repentance that's demonstrated in the Old Testament, we recognize the need to rid ourselves. And because grace is the ground groundwork, the foundational work for our salvation, we need to understand a few things. Number one, if we're going to rid ourselves, and we have to understand that every single person in the sound of my voice, whether you like it or not, whether you disagree with me or not, doesn't matter. The truth of the matter is, You are a sinner. I am a sinner. Because even for four seconds, if that's the only time in your life, you have chased after something that wasn't God and you have brought glory to yourself or in something else that is not God and you've desired pleasure in something that is not God. That is called sin. And because of sin, because we are all guilty of it, it has separated us from a holy God. So when you say take something perfect and something imperfect, they don't mix They don't even, I'm not saying they don't belong in the same room. They don't belong on the same planet because they can't. So when we deal with sin, we have to understand that our sin has caused us to be separated from God. And just because you do a few nice chores in your life, when you die, that does not merit or earn you favor with God. There's absolutely nothing you can do, actually, to earn favor with God. It is the most tragic thing to sit at a funeral and to hear So many times how good of a person that man or woman was that you never hear the name of Jesus Christ mentioned and they believe that heaven is awaiting. It's not. 
The truth of the matter is that we are separated from God. And apart from God, the only thing that we have to look forward to is death. Because after that, it gets way worse. But that's why we have to be aware of the desires and pursuits of our heart. Because when we recognize the things that aren't God we're pursuing, that's God's way of reminding us of the greatest call, the greatest glory that's awaiting our desire and the purpose of our life is to pursue him. So this call for grace, this call to rid ourselves, it's actually called repentance, where we recognize areas in our lives where we have disobeyed God by trying to chase after the things that fulfill us and not fulfill him and desire and chase after his kingdom. And that's where the second part of what he says, you need to rid yourselves and then you need to commit yourselves. This is the beauty of the gospel, that when Jesus died on the cross, when his blood was shed out, that his blood didn't cover your sin, it eliminated your sin. But you have to receive that, you have to accept that, you have to believe that. And when you do, understanding that your sin has consequences, the consequences of your sin are paid for in the completed work of Jesus Christ. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is how we know how to rid ourselves and then commit ourselves. Because he didn't say just commit yourselves to the Lord. He said, commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. That's how the Lord is going to overcome their enemies. That's how the Lord is going to overcome your enemies. And I'm not talking about the bully down the street. I'm talking about the things in this world that you are scared to deal with because you're afraid of how it's going to manipulate or transition your life. This is why we trust in the Lord. Because he's overcome this world. And we can trust in him. Let's keep reading, verses, beginning in verse 4. So the Israelites put away their bales put away their ashtoreths, and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. We see repentance. We see the people turn their hearts back to him and follow through. Because it's not just a lip service of, hey, we want to come back to God. There was an action that, re- that followed through. When they repented, there was an action that resembled it. You know, a lot of times we're the same way. True repentance will desire action in our life. True repentance will desire change in our lives. Y'all understand that, right? You can't get rid of something when you're secretly just holding it behind your back. By the way, God sees that too. Don't be so high on yourself that you think you can pull one over on him. Trust me, I know. When it says rid ourselves, we have to let go. There are transitions. And some of us, if we're going to be completely honest with the little G gods, with the idols that we have placed, that we are dedicating ourselves to, it might be radical life change. Let's be honest. Is this job going to be the one that's going to get you to set up to retirement and live out the rest of your life? Is the salary that comes with this job, that's the one? Is that what you're putting your hope in? Is the relationship you're in the thing that's going to bring you the fulfillment that you've been longing for your whole life? 
a guy or a girl, maybe somebody outside your marriage. Maybe if you're single, you're thinking, hey, you know what, it's fine. This, this is making me happy. This is good. Is that why you're still convicted by it? Because it's total fulfillment? Are you ready to rid yourselves? Is your trust fund, your retirement fund, your 401k set up just right because you know that whenever all this work stuff's done, you're going to live out the rest of your day smooth sailing? Is that what you're putting your hope in? See, it's not an idol in the corner, but maybe it's a lot closer than that for some of us. And God's word is calling us to rid ourselves and then commit ourselves. Because the truth is, if you don't rid yourselves of it, you're still going to be living for it. Samuel says, serve him only. Hear me out, man. There's nothing wrong with a good job. There's nothing wrong with a good paying job. There's nothing wrong with healthy relationships. There's nothing wrong with retirement and planning for a future. There's nothing wrong with that. I actually encourage all of these things. I think they're great. Personal experience. But if that has become the pursuit and desires of your heart, maybe it's time to listen to God when he's telling you to rid ourselves maybe god almighty has a better plan for your fulfillment than you do and that relationship does maybe god almighty has something in mind that's going to give you more security than your 401k maybe god almighty has a plan for the job that he created you to do with the talents that he gave you to do it for his kingdom and glory and it looks different than i don't know But we have to be willing to go before the Father to rid ourselves and commit ourselves. And that's what these people did. And when they did this, when they found themselves worshiping in repentance, let's keep looking at what happens in verse 7. It says, when the Philistines heard that the Israelites had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. Man, okay, so here's the scene. Remember we talked about this just a minute ago. The Philistines hear that all the Israelites had gathered at Mizpah because they're having a church service or something. Hey guys, Philistines, this is our chance. We can ride through on one fell swoop and eliminate all the Israelites for all time. It's going to be awesome. Let's go. So they come in and they start attacking and the Israelites heard about it. But look at the difference. Look at the difference at how God transforms lives in just a moment's notice, picking up in verse 8. They said to Samuel, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us. Did you see how they worded that? Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us. They had turned back to the Lord. That he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. In other words, they had put their full trust in the only deliverance they were going to have is in the Lord. And then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. That's a really good line in Scripture, by the way. Mm. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, while they were still having church, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle, But that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. 
I love their heart. I love their heart. I know the Philistines are coming, but Samuel, don't stop. Don't stop crying out to the Lord on our behalf. That's the only way we're going to be delivered. And I love verse 10. Did you see how verse 10 starts? But that day. <laughs> I'm sorry, I think that's fascinating. How many days had the Israelites have that it was hopeless? How many days had the Israelites woken up and be like, it could be any day now the Philistines are going to attack? How many times did they wake up and be like, our, our, our nation, I don't even know why we got brought out of Egypt for this. How many days? But not that day. But that day, something was different. What about you? How many days has it been for you? How many days have you started your day with the idea of, I can't, I, I can't quit. I can't stop what I'm doing. How many days did you start and find yourself, it's just not worth it anymore. I, what's the point? How many days of your prayer life sounded like, God, can you just, can you just make it all go away? Can you just get rid of it? Can you just take me out of this situation? How many of us in this church, if they were honest, would say, I really need Monday to start with, but that day the Lord thundered. How many of us need that day to start now? It was the first day of the deliverance of God because of obedient hearts. Don't sit back and wonder, well, where's God in my day? Where's my butt that day? As long as you're holding on to all those asterisks and all those little G gods, if you haven't rid yourselves and committed yourselves, then you're going to be waiting a long time. God is opening this door of grace to say, let's confront your sin issues and let me come in. I will thunder and your enemies will fall. But that day, the Lord thundered. And there was victory. Look at verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far, the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer, it's a unique word. It's a, uh, it means a stone of remembrance, a stone of help. And the people who are now in full submission, who are in full service to the Lord, and the Lord only recognize that the only way things are going to happen is if God brings help if God brings the victory they are in full remembrance of who God is and what he has done and they recognize the reverence that comes with being children of God once they asked and once they sought after God once they fixed their eyes on the Lord he thundered they were delivered the rest of chapter 7 actually goes on to say and from that point on the Philistines never bothered the Israelites as long as Samuel was priest That's pretty good because God, he always wins, church. Why do we keep keep picking the other side if we know God always wins? If we fix our eyes on him, if we seek him, if we ask him to give us a clear vision for what he wants to accomplish through our church, if we worship him alone, if we serve him alone, God will thunder and the whole of the earth will shake before his kingdom. I want to be a part of that kind of faith. I want to be a part of that. So this morning, let's be clear. 
let's be perfectly clear that as we dive into some of these things that we're going to walk through real quickly about the state of the church, we are going to celebrate, but it is only because of who God is. You better not clap. Because too often times, if one person claps, everybody else feels the need to clap, especially in a Baptist church. That's not a symbol of thanks. We're going to have a time at the end for something like that. But I want to share with you some things that we should look back and say, God, be praised. God, we love you and we thank you for moving in our midst. But this is not, here's the thing, man. I'm not a guy that gets hung up on numbers. I believe that we cannot solely base success off of numbers. The kingdom is bigger than that. But I do believe that our numbers point us to areas where we've been obedient or disobedient. So I'm not saying that we're hanging our hopes on this. I'm saying these are real numbers. But what we're going to do is we're going to worship God in response to how he's called us to serve him only. And we're going to remember the privilege we have to respond in humility and worship and in praise for what he has done. 2019 was a year that our church saw what God can do if we fulfill our promise to live biblically. We've seen God move in 2019. We've seen things you can't measure. We've seen, our, we've seen God connect our church body through intergener- intergenerational relationships like we've never seen before. We're not there yet. We still got a ways to go, but man, it has been so cool to see how our unity is continuing to grow because of our intergenerational, you say it three times fast, get off me. Our intergenerational relationships are growing solid and and that doesn't surprise me because if you remember a year ago, there were four other staff members that stood up here and and their desire, their prayer felt goals were that our church would grow intergenerationally and God has answered that and continues to move us in that direction. We saw staples of Westmead's culture shift with a new look. We had a new look in VBS. We got a little bit of a, a more refined look in our small groups. We got a new branding, a new logo. We're getting updates. We're getting ways to disseminate information uh, faster, clearer communication. And through that, we're able to reach people more efficiently. We've seen a commitment. We've seen a commitment from you. We've seen commitment from our church family as our average weekly attendance has escalated now helpfully to over 500 people a week. Helpfully. That's not like once every now and then. Helpfully. And not even that, the number of people who gave last year is up, which means people are desiring to live in obedience to God's word. Again, none of this is credited to anyone but the Lord and what God is doing. Let's talk about membership. We had some losses last year. The greatest number of losses we had, we had 15 members transfer a letter to heaven. Oh, and I can't wait for the day that I'm one of them. Because that is our goal, church. Don't lose sight of that. That is our, that is our goal. We had 12 members transfer a letter to another church, and may we continue to pray that God has planted them in that area for the ministries that that church is going to do, that God will grow them there, and that God will benefit that church from those people partnering with them. So pray for those 12 people. Let's talk about additions. We had 33 join via baptism, and that's not, somebody accused me of sandbagging two weeks ago when we had the big baptism service. They're like, I know what you're doing. I'm like, no. The 33 that have joined via baptism does not count the ones that put their baptism on the right side of salvation. This is just by joining via baptism. We had 33. We had 49 people join last year of a transfer of letter. We had nine join via statement. All in all, we had 91 total additions last year. Let's talk about financials. We had 84 new givers this year. Now, let me, I'm just going to be honest with you, make sure you know what's going on. We have some computer systems and stuff that I can't explain because it's way over my head. 
And I don't go online and look, and I don't go see who did what or anything. I just look at who, how many of our church is giving. What's the percentage of our church that gives? We'll get in that. We had 84 new giving units this year. I'm excited about that. We gave, in Annie Armstrong this year, we gave these numbers. I, I, David, I apologize. I should have given these numbers to David so you can see it. So you can get them from me later. You can write them down as we go. Annie Armstrong this year, we had $18,186 given in Annie Armstrong for missions. Praise God. Lottie Moon, this past month for international missions, we had 16479 given for Lottie Moon missions offering. We've been working on trying to get out of debt. In 2019, we had extra money paid on the debt from our church families. That extra money was $181,806 extra paid on our debt. Our current balance, you see in their bulletin, is $259,000 We have a budget of $282,000. Let me do the math for you. Church, in 2020, God willing, we will be debt-free. Because God is faithful. Now it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Our estimated budget of 2019 was $1,548,000. Our budget receipts, in other words, the money that was giving for our church was $1,677,000, a difference of 129000 extra that our church gave because we're learning how to live biblically in our tithe and offering. So if you combine what's taking place of the money that came in this year that we didn't plan on, it's $345,898 because God's people said, I trust the Lord. And I, in my heart of hearts, I believe that we didn't give all this money. But that God does what he wants to do for what he has going on here. I am thankful. Again, numbers are not the sole measuring stick for what success looks like. But what I do want us to recognize these numbers in today is these numbers do point to the fact that the hand of God is at work in Westmead Baptist Church. And I'm calling on our church people to pray for a clear vision for 2020 because we just got a glimpse, and I promise you, church, it was just a glimpse of what God can do when we give him our obedience and our submission and our worship and our praise and our service. What could he do in 2020 with a clear vision if we follow him fully because we know who our God is and we know what he's capable of doing? Just like the Israelites, I want us to see what God did for them. But what they did is what we're about to do. As they took a time to not just move on to what was next, they stopped. And out of reverence and recognition of what God has done, they worshiped. So church, I'm inviting you to stand to your feet. And this is not our invitation. This is our response to the faithfulness of God in 2019. Let us worship him in thanksgiving for who he is, but in eager anticipation of what he wants to do in 2020.
92, 1 through 8 says, It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night to the music of the ten-stringed lyre and the melody of the harp. For you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. How great are your works, Lord. How profound your thoughts. Senseless people do not know. Fools do not understand that though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be destroyed forever. But you, Lord, are forever exalted. Psalms 145, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. I told you not to clap earlier. This is our chance to give God praise. On generation, commend your works to another. Then they tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. This morning, church, that's what we're doing. They tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. Church, we worship out of thanksgiving. calling you to rid yourselves of the little g-gods you've been chasing, maybe in 2019, maybe since 2020 started. Has God made you aware of how he is not your focus, of how he is not your passion? 
And maybe he has. Maybe today is the day that it's time to rid yourselves. Hey, listen, man. I know you might be dealing with something hard. I'm volunteering. I'll go with you. Please call me. Just stop, man. After church, I'm going to be right out here. Say, I want to go. Uh, let's get together. I, I'm with you. I help you through whatever it is. If it's not me, find somebody that loves Jesus in you more than you do right now and ask them to go with you. It's time to rid yourselves so that the victories can come through Jesus Christ. For some of us, maybe we've read our, maybe we're not pursuing the things of this world, but we're really not serving God only. Maybe we're so busy doing all these other things that we're missing out on the joy we have of growing in our relationship with God the Father. And maybe that's you this morning. I invite you that as we go into a time of invitation to just come and kneel at the altar, go find a, a brother or sister in Christ to pray with you. Come pray. I'd love to pray for you. Maybe today, the idea of grace was foreign to you until you, you caught wind of what Samuel was talking about. Of how you're separated from God because of your sin, but the grace that comes with knowing Jesus eliminates everything and grants you freedom in Christ. Maybe today, you're ready for that to be your story. And I would love to talk with you about that in just a few minutes. Maybe you're just looking for a church to partner with to do ministry. I'm a little biased. But there's none greater because the presence of God is here. Whatever it is, this is called an invitation because God wants you to come and respond to him. So as we remain standing, let's enter into his presence and respond in obedience to what God wants to do in our lives.